Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 3 of Pod Shots. This week, we have John Wang as our guest. He's the founder of Mastery Academy and the One Kindness Challenge. He's also a TEDx speaker. When he's not doing public speaking or coaching, you can usually find him obsessively seeking out bubble tea. Gotta love boba. Our liquor of choice this week is called Monkey Shoulder. Monkey Shoulder is made with small batches of different space-side single malts expertly blended, then married together. It has a richness and vibrancy that's combined with fruity aromas and a hint of mellow vanilla notes, making it perfect for mixing. So with that said, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and enjoy Season 2, Episode 3 of Potshots. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a while. What, um, so what have you been up to like since we last spoke, which was probably a year ago now, I think, or more? Yeah, it's been a while. Um, well, my main, my main bread and butter business has always been Mastery Academy, which is, uh, we, we basically help, um, I would say ambitious high school students get into the university of their dreams. And that's always been the ongoing business and has been for a long time. Uh, One Kindness, a project that we, we discussed a long time ago, um, just has been doing fairly well. Like it's just gone on the, on the back burner for a long time. I just didn't have the time and space to really dedicate time into it until we're recently where I decided to, you know, bring on at least, you know, like a, like a VA to just handle uh, social growth over time. So that's on that, which has been good. And, uh, recently it's just been making the transition to the new online, you know, the online systems, um, which, which I've been really enjoying like this transition into, uh, that platform has been very effective and very powerful. And I'm, I'm excited about it. It's got me actually quite energized means like creating online content, creating, um, yeah, like creating more online courses that has been very exciting, bringing in new staff and hiring, you know, bigger teams and stuff like that. That's been very exciting. So that's been what's, what's going on for me. What else? Um, not much, uh, been dating this wonderful partner for more than a year. Things are going well. Yeah. Life's life's good out here. Like Vancouver is, is, is a great place to be right now. Um, <laughs> even with the pandemic, it's just like things are are quiet but not dead. That's that's where we're at. Yeah, I've been you to, I've been to Vancouver. I love it. Oh, nice. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. That's Did great. you grow up there? Did you relocate there? Or? Uh, my, my parents moved, uh, our whole family here when I was like six or seven. So it's been, it's been, I, I grew up here basically. Yeah. I'm fair. I'm, I'm a fair amount of a local. Yeah. Yeah. I lived around the world, a few different places. Um, uh, so, uh, Brandon, you, you know, we're, it's the first time we really got a chat, but, uh, my yeah. background is I, I've traveled around quite a bit. So mm-hmm. I've been to about like, you know, about 40, 50, 50 different countries at this point. Um, and, and lived in a few different cities, but then most importantly, I still always come back to Vancouver. Like that's been my home base. Yeah. It's hard Where to get away from? from Vancouver. It's, it's gorgeous there, especially up yeah. in the, in the summertime, go up Oof. with my family once or twice uh, nice. in a year. Nice. And where are you from before Medina? Where am I from? Yeah. Uh, Las Vegas. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm nowhere <laughs> near where I'm from right now being in Columbia yeah. and it's definitely much more different than, uh, BC, but mm-hmm. no, Vegas is pretty cool too. It's, it's definitely hot, but it's very entertaining. There's plenty to do. Mm, Why great. did you laugh, John? <laughs> <laughs> 
you laughed. Because <laughs> uh, uh, Vegas, about Vegas? Because mm. <laughs> I don't know, like there's just something like, I feel like Vegas is just, there's so much richness. And I, I, I know so many people who um, live around the world after living through Vegas. And I just find it such an interesting thing. And mm. I, I never figured out why. And, and I feel like every time I go down to Vegas, you know, once you leave the strip, I'm sure you're, you know, you're obviously familiar with this. Like I've met some of the most fascinating people who come from Vegas. And I feel like Vegas is just like this beautiful gathering ground of just the most dynamic and varied kind of people of backgrounds. And, you know, I, I could, I can name like four or five entrepreneurial friends who, um, have moved to Vegas and loved it. And it's not something you would expect, but it's like become this beautiful hub of like even spirituality is like finding a hub in, in Vegas right oh, now. Oh yeah. I've, I've seen monks on the strip, believe it or not with their cell phones. And <laughs> I see some crazy stuff. Um, you know, the strip is, um, it's, uh, the sandbox of the world in a lot of ways, you know, you'll see a lot of international people come there for pleasure, business. I mean, you name it. So, in and mm -hmm. out. It's, it's very touristy for sure, mm -hmm. but actually a pretty good place to live too. Um, mm -hmm. you know, around the strip cause it generates so much income. Mm -hmm. Um, so in the casinos and everything, they, they spend a lot of money in the surrounding communities. So you get really good schools. Um, you get, you know, really good shopping malls, plenty of places to eat. Um, it's very safe depending on the area. Um, so yeah, no, it's a pretty good place to live. I, I enjoy being there when I'm not stuck in quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the conclusion here is we should all move to Vegas. <laughs> yes. The that's, that's the next uh, stop. Comment. That would be interesting. Let's, all, let's all go to Vegas. I don't think I'd get any work done if I was in Vegas full time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, um, what, we have three very different time zones, right? Like, uh, uh, Brandon, where are you right now in terms of time zone? I'm in, I'm in Colombia, so I'm in Medellin, but on Bogota time. So you're Pacific time? Yeah. Okay, so you're right. three hours, two hours behind me. So gotcha. it's 12, 18 my time, so 10, 18 your time. Perfect, yeah. Well, that um, makes it six, gone. 18. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> That's it. Three different time zones, three different countries. Yeah. 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 He said, as he looked at his London clock on his uh, desktop. <laughs> <laughs> All the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's amazing. Um, it's good to know that you've had a positive experience. I mean, obviously a lot of people haven't, but, um, I would, I would say I'm kind of neutral. It, it, it kind of had an impact on my business, uh, but, and definitely had an impact on my emotional well-being. Mm -hmm. just because I'm, a, I'm extroverted, uh, you know, uh, not very, but I am definitely on that side of the spectrum. So not being able to be with people and interact as usual, definitely posed some uh, issues for me emotionally. And I had to kind of work through those, which took, I would say a couple of months, definitely as it got worse. Uh, um, so I'm not sure how it was for, I, I know, I, I guess Brandon's probably been through a bunch of that too, because, you know, of, of the fact you, you were stuck in Medellin in an apartment for so long, uh, by yourself. <laughs> um, I don't know why I'm laughing at that, but <laughs> yeah. And, and so, 
it, it, it's been it's been an interesting ride, but there are definitely people who've benefited greatly from this, and surely those people have online businesses and they digitize their income streams uh, predominantly. You know, like Zoom, like we're using Zoom right now, and they've just been exploding in growth. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like even mutual friends of ours have been pulling in, you know, the cash over the over the quarantine, the lockdown. Um, oh, yeah. 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 E-commerce has just gone, you know, through the roof, I suppose. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's been a lot of positive sides to this um, uh, for, for people. But uh, on that topic of mm-hmm. digitizing and being online, I know that you have uh, spent a lot of your career teaching people well, actually, why don't you tell us more about uh, the Mastery Academy? Because that's that's what you originally kind of got stuck into when you first got started, right? And you've had it for, for maybe 15, 14, 15 years now. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's been a long time. Um, and, and I mean, Mastery Academy is the current name now. Previously, we had Top Student Academy. Uh, but yeah, it's it's been... I mean, I've been doing, I would say... Uh, I've been in the education space uh, for a long time. Initially, it was like, like, you know, even from when I was in college, initially, it was just about like the mind and psychology and using, you know, motivation, productivity. And that was where it all started. And then moved on into being a little bit more specific in, you know, this, this very specific category of helping high school students and young adults. And that was a big turning point for me. It was like, that was when I was like, okay, this is what I'm honing into. There's a clarity here. In the past few years, I've also started doing support coaching, you know, other entrepreneurs who want to get out there and share their message, um, especially, you know, trying to find their own voice and trying to find productivity. So, uh, but that's just something I do on my own personal time. It's just something I really enjoy. Uh, so that's been a mix. Uh, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. The reason Are these like, that. go ahead. Sorry, Brandon. go ahead. No, I was just curious about the. This is one of the issues with Zoom. Yes, <laughs> if you can. Yeah. Go in, wait, wait, they have reactions <laughs> because of okay. delay. It's all right, Brandon. You go ahead. I'm gonna shut up. Okay, I, I was just saying, like, what type of like courses are these? Like, are they like supplanting like their or supplementing? Excuse me, their current curriculum, or is it just to like help enhance their education or their skills in certain areas? Uh, absolutely. Yes. So there's the two main avenues is, uh, those who want writing training and then those who want productivity and thinking training. So we do mindset and productivity. It's something that I think the entrepreneurial world have started to discover. I think a lot of people in the self who are very comfortable in the self-development industry, that they're familiar with it. Like, you know, we're talking like classics, like four hour work week, thinking, you know, thinking fast and slow, uh, Tony Robbins type self-development stuff. But to the younger audiences, this is still very much brand new. And it's, it's fascinating how big of a change like that little mindset switch can be. And our goal is to try to get in there as early as possible because a lot of really, you know, if you talk to an average person who has, you know, let's say, let's say like a mid thirties entrepreneur who has, you know, all the programs who have done all that work. If you take a look at so much of that work, a lot of that work is about undoing damage. 
Like, so, so much of the work is about undoing the damage that you learned in your teens and in your early twenties. And, um, so right now, for example, one of the projects that I have been coaching and talking about has been about burnout and overcoming burnout, how entrepreneurs get into burnout to begin with and how to sort of get productive in a post burnout. Cause I went through burnout about three, four years ago, really rough kind of like total life collapsing, um, physical and, and mental kind of shift. And, uh, the idea here is to give the people the tools so that they don't have to go through that to begin with. Mm. What happened? Gotcha. What happened to you for you to have that kind of epiphany? Uh, I mean, you ever hear the the, the term a cosmic two by four? (laughs) So the the term cosmic two by four is the idea is that like, uh, (laughs) the idea is that like you get messages throughout your life from your body, from your environment that tells you something isn't right. Like something isn't right. And when you're an entrepreneur, I get, you know, obviously Clement, you're an entrepreneur, Brandon, I get the sense that you're an entrepreneur as well. Mm -hmm. Like you guys, you know, we are the hustle community. We are the people who have believed for a long time that you can overcome anything by working harder than everybody else. And that was, that was not just a lesson. That was a religion we carried, right? Like if you think about like Gary Vee and guys like that, like we, we believe so much that if we worked harder, woke up earlier, went to sleep later, you know, maximize every opportunity that we will get to this, you know, like Lambo driving, uh, you know, stage. But what got us, I would say to the stage of like success, um, to where you have like a good, very well run business is almost the opposite of what will get you to the next stage. And so for me, my own personal story was, uh, I started getting really bad ulcers. Uh, and it, it was, it, it got to like, I was stressed out. I was con- like, I was traveling around the world. I was living the, you know, the Instagram life, right? Like I was like constantly traveling first class flights, you know, great hotels, all these kind of things, working remotely, you know, that kind of lifestyle. And then one day I just crashed really fucking hard. <laughs> I should ask this. Uh, is this a, is this a swearing friendly podcast? Oh yeah. Totally. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, we're like sailors sometimes actually. <laughs> premium we drink topic. Yeah. This, this isn't going to like upset your ulcers. Is it? <laughs> no, no, I have the ulcers are all done. Uh, that was the biggest thing is that like, I have seen every doctor I could, I could find on the planet uh, who, who specialized in this and nothing worked. I was on all the pills. I was on all the medications. I was doing yeah, breath work, yeah. like you name it. I was trying it. it. It got so bad. I remember one time I had to give a speech and I had to ask, it was the most embarrassing moment. Cause I had to ask the, the, the organizer for a chair. Cause I knew that if I stood up, I'd pass out. Cause I was in so much pain that like even stretching oh my, my abdominals would have yeah. made me pass out. So I gave the entire talk sitting down and I just look like, I just, I, I look a bit arrogant. I mean, it might've worked for my, for my, for my speech that day where I just gave the entire talk sitting down, but it was, that's how bad it was. Um, right. and, and it, I was depressed and I didn't realize I was depressed. And, you know, and then after that, following that, I went through a really rough breakup and a separation. And, and I think that was a wake up call. I had ignored so many symptoms and so many signs along the way that something wasn't right, that this, this way of life, this way of thinking wasn't working for me. And I just always ignore the signs. I just thought, Oh, I just got to work harder. So, so this was what, like uh, what a yeah. couple of years, a few years ago now. 
I'll say about three years ago was, was when right. things okay. got I had really no bad. idea. I'll tell you, as someone who was talking to you, uh, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so and, you're a good actor. Was, <laughs> and that was a lesson that I think it was, it was an ego thing, right? Like, you know, I, you know, you share the good, but you know, you hide the bad. And, yeah, and I think it also, I mean, sorry, if I'll just, I just no, want to say something here. I think one thing that I realized was just probably like you did, it is, it can be toxic to make your environment all about doing and achieving. Absolutely. You know, that, that is, that is essentially, um, it is an important aspect of, of entrepreneurship and productivity and, uh, you know, just hustling, but mm-hmm. it's not life. It shouldn't be the goal of your life. And that has had profound impact on my mental health and my emotional health. And I've learned that, um, you know, I'm a lot happier when I, when I strike a very, you know, some people are, some people are different. I, I think, you know, you can't box ev- everyone into the same category. So what works for me might not necessarily work for Brandon or you, but I think, you know, ultimately I think everything, everything needs to be uh, in moderation, you know? Um, so that's, that's also something that I uh, have observed, but on the note of stomach ulcers, taking a hike and leaving you in peace. <laughs> Should we take our first shot? I'm just happy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Thank, thanks. Thanks for the bottle. I'm, I'm very excited to try this and taste no this. Some, I actually tried this. Have, have you tried it before? <laughs> <laughs> I have not tried this yet, but uh, we're, we're about to start. So this is just, just to clarify, this is currently, it's currently 10 AM here. This is, this is definitely <laughs> the earliest yeah. that uh, I've drank this week. This is probably and, the key. Uh, drink all day unless you start in the morning. So drink. off to a good start. <laughs> mm, yeah, it does I mean, give you. I, hey, look, uh, it's a time zone thing. It's past five p.m. Uh, where Clement is at, so we're going to count this one as a as an evening it's, thing. It's high noon here. Let's get it. Let's <laughs> kill it, everybody. Thank Cheers. You. Cheers. Cheers. It's surprisingly easier than most of the alcohol that I think we've done is shots, hard liquors. This is very smooth. Monkey shoulder. Mm. This is so smooth. I I would expect it it to have hit harder, especially for a scotch. Yeah, it's a blend, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) it's very malty. Like you can definitely taste the like the malty flavor to it. Definitely. Yeah. It's very sweet Mm. compared to let's say Jameson. And, and just for uh, disclosure, I'm not much of a drinker at all. So this is this does that one shot. You're going to start seeing me get redder and redder. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's OK. Uh, if, if you're watching this on Zoom, you're going to start seeing me get turning into a tomato after a couple of shots. We're going to filter this. We're going to put it through so much post-production. It's fine. Everyone's just going to have like blonde hair and you know, blue eyes. No, it's all good. It's all good. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it, it yeah on the on the topic of kind of okay so you went through that metamorphosis let's say sure and then on the other side what did you change great question um it was a very fundamental top-down kind of a, a, a change. I, I think I went through a few months where I was just going through a very quiet depression. And what, and what I mean by quiet depression is that, and I, I've talked to so many entrepreneurs, you know, 
you know, Clement, like you and I, you know, we've been part of a mastermind, you know, for example, with other entrepreneurs, I have a lot of friends who are entrepreneurs and it was such a common theme to, to constantly show off sort of the strong side. Right. Uh, obviously a lot of these guys, you know, we, we have, you know, social media presences and stuff like that, but even to our own friends, I think there was that. So I didn't tell anybody about it. I just did it alone. And, and there was no real support around me. And there, there was no acceptance of like, yeah, even if I share with my friends, they would understandingly like, yeah, they would kind of be like, yeah, like that's tough. And that would be the end of the conversation. And uh, what I found was essentially a combination of a number of different things that, that helped me. You know, first and foremost, I went to try the medical route and it just didn't do much for me. And then I found a really good counselor who uh, suggested that, um, I actually didn't spend too much time in counseling with him, but he suggested I joined essentially what was called a men's group, which is a bunch of guys um, sitting around and just sharing their feelings. It's not something, it's, it's very different from what you would consider to be manly. Right. You're, you're thinking like so much of masculinity is about like showing up and like being strong and being like, I can take anything, I can handle anything, put it on my back. I got this. And for the first time I was sitting in a, in a circle of men and very uncomfortably getting to share all the beliefs that I've held up about myself. Mm. And, and I think that was what helped. It was just like starting to let go of that, starting to let go of expectations. That started a whole process of deeper real change. That, that was what saved me. Yeah. What was that like though? Like were you sitting in a circle, like an AA meeting, sharing your feelings or was it like a, just a community, like a group, like on Facebook or online? How does it work? Um, so there is an, there is a, there is a greater organization. The one that I'm part of, it's, uh, it's called Samurai Brotherhood. And so we have, uh, these kind of weekly meetings, uh, in the squad. I'm, I now currently lead a squad, uh, because I've been in it for a while and I came on, I said, you know, I wanted to step in leadership and imagine 12 to 15 guys sitting in a room and just talking about whatever that's going on in their life. And that's essentially all that is. It's not, it's not super structured. It's not AA. It's not a support group. It's just a space where you could talk. It's, it's no different than what we're doing now, really, when you think about it, except the implied acceptance is like that we're pushing each other to open up and to be expressive, to undo the conditioning that we've gotten in our upbringing. Okay. Gotcha. Mm what do you think then um is 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 one of the the major issues with uh do you think it's basically vulnerability and the willingness to show vulnerability that's holding people back from from actually being happier inside hmm. I, number one is acceptance and um and again, like the, the, the number one question I always get from talking about this part of my, my life is why men's work? Like, is it sexist? Is it exclusive? Mm. And I think a big part of the reason is because if you take a look at the kind of socialization of genders, women are generally more accepted to talk about their feelings. The idea of girls kind of like gathering together, to talk about feelings is, is, is more accepted. Like to talk about what they're experiencing, what their frustrations are, how they're, how they feel about things. Whereas with men, 
feelings are always associated with weakness, right? The idea, like, you know, think about it. Like when I was brought up, you know, I was taught things like boys don't cry. I was taught things like, oh, like, don't be a pussy. Don't be a wuss. Like man up. Even the words man up inherently is suggestion of press it down and deal with the problems on your own. Don't share. Don't talk about it. But that's not how emotions work. Mm-hmm. You know, emotions can only be processed when we're talking about it. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, now what I've, I've, I've come to realize is that there's a number of different things that can fundamentally change. And a big part of that is the encouragement and the acceptance, the permission to say, yeah, you know what? Like, dude, if you feel angry, it's okay. If you'll feel sad, it's okay. And even something as simple as that it, to be in a space of other men who is like, yeah, dude, like it's not less, doesn't make you less manly. It doesn't make you less successful uh, to have fears. Like this is just a normal part of life. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And I agree with you, by the way. Uh, I think now we're going through a kind of a shift in our paradigm of uh, looking at the status quo and how, you know, uh, stereotypes have kind of held us back to a certain degree, <laughs> maybe not a certain degree, quite a lot, actually, in certain cases. So, yeah, I agree with you. And, I, you know, I, I remember also watching um, a, a man who leads a group of, of uh, well, he's got, a, he's got a business that basically teaches men how to be men. I, I forget the name. Maybe I'll put it in the, in the description. But... Um, I did kind of agree with something he said because he is a very masculine man, if you know what I mean. Like he's very kind of domineering and, you know, um, um, forthright. So one of the things he did say that I agree with was uh, there's a there's a time and a place for things. So if you want to be that, you know, open and vulnerable, you know, it might not make sense in certain situations. Like as a leader, for example, if you're... <laughs> You know, with SEAL Team Six, and you're just coming out of the water. I don't know good if I feel so good about this anymore. But yeah, so that's a bit of an extreme example. But I think you know, also in everyday life, there there probably are times when men do have to weather the storm a little, kind of you know, uh, incog- in an incognito way, and mm-hmm. so as to not kind of give rise to fear in in the ranks. But uh, but uh, overall. It would be it would be a much better world if men could communicate their feelings. <laughs> well, it's exactly yeah. as you said, right? Like, imagine a CEO coming out to talk about his feelings to his staff. It's just like, oh, you know, guys, I I just don't know if what we're doing makes a lot of sense, and I'm a little uncertain as to my purpose in the world right now. Like, that's not <laughs> the right space for it. Yeah. It's exactly as you said, like, like being like having feelings doesn't mean you share it with everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's, yeah. there's, there's a, a great quote. Apply that, though. What, what's that? Uh, I was going to say, there's a good way to apply that though. I'm actually reading a really good book on uh, tactical empathy and emotional intelligence. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, as a leader or as someone, as a leader in your work environment, whether you're like a manager or CEO or, or something, um, being able to use, you know, emotional empathy to understand how someone else is, you know, feeling or how they react to what you say, and then using tactical empathy, um, which is, which is like, um, understanding how someone reacts to different responses 
from yourself. Like the way you engage with someone, the way you uh, interact with someone can elicit an emotional response. So using empathy and a tactical approach um, to be a more effective leader, to encourage people in an appropriate way. Um, I think, I think there's a lot of interesting parallels there too. It's a really good book. What's the book title? Um, one I read before was uh, something about splitting the difference or something like that. I can't remember the author. And then the one I'm reading right now is called ego authority failure. Mm, um, yeah. I'm interested uh, in that too. Yeah. I, I read a never split the difference. It's phenomenal. Yeah. It's a good book. And then uh, ego authority failure came out in like May. So I just, I downloaded it recently, started reading it. It's kind of the same stuff, but it kind of really hammers away at it. Really, really good. John, uh, John and, and Brandon, what are your thoughts on Myers-Briggs and those kinds of personality uh, categorization tools and their effectiveness in terms of application in the real world? How do you feel about, uh, uh, let's say, an application for like a recruitment process for a company that heavily leans on those kinds of things? Does it, does it work? I think it's important. I don't think it's everything, but it's important. I've used, um, Colby, uh, K O L B E, uh, as a, for, for tests, um, for hiring before. And, and I think it's pretty good. Uh, I think Colby is good at determining your work style and how to sort of best manage. Um, I'm thinking of the book tribe here, I think, or, uh, or something similar to it on the sort of building community. I need to go find it on my bookshelf. Uh, I read a book that was very groundbreaking and essentially talks about how leaders can use vulnerability and just being, just by being more open with their employees to better build a tribe. And that, you know, what, what Brandon was talking about really reminded me of that just now. So building morale through being vulnerable, I, I think a lot of, but, but I think it's, it's selective. It's not just about like coming out and just being constantly open about, Oh, I'm going through a divorce guys. And you know, I've been really sad lately. I'm not getting laid enough. Like you don't talk about that kind of stuff with your staff, but it is about understanding like, no, like my door is open. Uh, you can come in, I can connect with you on a human level. And I think that's very important. Um, and as to answer your question, Myers-Briggs, yeah, to a certain degree, I've had some success with Myers-Briggs. I don't lean on it very heavily because I know that it can be um, flexible with Myers-Briggs. Uh, I've mm -hmm. had experiences with that as well. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Colby has worked out really well for me. Is this something that you teach people? I mean, I, I know that you're involved with helping people communicate better. Um, how, how do you teach people how to communicate better? Like, cause I know that some people are inherently better at it than others. Do you know, like, for example, some people just have the gift of the gab and they're a bit more confident maybe in their own skin. So that already plays a big role in being able to get across ideas and thoughts and sell things and flirt and, you know, <laughs> score a date. <laughs> <laughs> well, I learned I did not have this gift. I, I did not have this gift. <laughs> give the gap, so to speak. I, I, I don't think I was ever born with anything like that. Um, I was a absolute hopeless case throughout high school. Uh, when it comes to talking to people, I was shy. I was introverted. I was just not great at it. And I learned 
um, communication because I, I don't know that it's for some people, they're naturals at it, but I wasn't one of those people. Mm. So I, mm. you know, I, I actually learned, uh, you know, this is my first, very, very, very first ventures was, uh, learning, you know, dating and, you know, <laughs> pick up lines online. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for yeah. me, I think it's something that is learned. I a hundred percent. If you take a look at the people who are great at it, go talk to their parents. One of the parents is going to be smooth as butter. Okay. You know, yeah. I hundred percent think social skills is a skill like any other. It's like programming skills, like language skills. You'll learn it. Are people who are empathetic naturally uh, more uh, able to pick things up at the details? Yeah. I think people who are empathetic are able to, but even that can be learned. Mm. Brennan, you talked about tactical empathy. That's such a fascinating term. I would love to hear more about that as well. It, it is. It is really fascinating. I'm, I'm still learning a lot about it, but it's very interesting to think about, you know, how everyone's different as a person. Everyone's personality is different. Um, you know, whatever um, chart you use, whether it's Myers-Briggs or something else, um, I mean, they're all good in their own ways. I mean, that general idea is understanding that everyone's personality is vastly different. It's not just left and right. It's not just introvert, extrovert. There's so many factors that go into that. And the more you can create a profile for an individual, the better you can, you know, socially engage with that person, um, relate with that person, bond with that person, um, you know, whether it's in the workplace, outside the workplace. Um, so using so tactical empathy definitely plays um a bit of a role there in terms of you know you know taking down some walls building bridges relating to people empathizing um in the right way um you know being vulnerable in a way that's you know influential um not just you know hey i i uh, my girlfriend broke up with me today or, Hey, I, I accidentally spilled my coffee on my shirt today. I feel terrible. Or it's not just like blurting out whatever makes you feel bad, but you know, using that in a tactical way to seem more human. Which is seem- ironically the situation I think with most mm-hmm. manager positions is that they are simply not trained well enough. And so that's why you kind of end up hating your manager that that's a, like a common stereotype with employees is that they, they really detest their management uh, figures and just, I don't know. I I mean, we're talking about a, probably a systemic issue with the culture of business in terms of having leaders actually trained or anyone trained for that matter. I think training, you know, look at what's happening with Black Lives Matter and the whole police situation. Sam Harris is literally breaking down the numbers or was it Sam Harris or was it Joe Rogan? I think maybe Jocko Wilnick on Joe Rogan. I watched the other day. He was talking about how just horrifically undertrained the police forces for their job role. Like they're supposed to go out, keep the peace, stop people killing others, stop getting killed. And they get four weeks of training a year or something like that, Man, which is a tiny amount of training, you know, and kind of helps to explain, but doesn't completely explain the reasons why someone could wrestle with cops and get a taser from them and run away from them <laughs> too. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a, there's, there's a huge issue. I think with the culture of training in, in workplaces. 
It's, you know, a, it's a crazy issue. It's a crazy, deeply rooted issue, especially in America. It's not as simple as saying that cops need to be trained more. I guarantee the problem won't go away. Mm. Um, there's so many factors on both sides. Um, you know, a lot of what we hear about, you know, it's just in social media or on the news. We don't really, we're not really there. We're not seeing what's going on. I mean, how much more are the cops, you know, playing into it, making it worse? How much um, is the individual or the victim, you know, creating a situation where they don't have to? Like, what are all the dynamics? I guarantee you that solving one of those dynamics isn't going to fix the thing. And that's why we've had these issues in America for so very long. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's a part of it. It's definitely it an issue. part of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I suppose. I think, yeah. Yeah. Go if, ahead, John. If you yeah, want to, if you want to blow up, um, if I could sure share a tip that I think would, would solve, I think something like 30% of most people's issues with other people, it is just a very simple technique of repeating back to them something you heard. That's it. I think if we practice this, this would solve probably 30 to 40% of most people's conflicts is just the words. What I'm hearing you say is blank and whatever that is, somebody said you something, just repeat the, repeat the last three to four words of what they just said back to them and just be like, oh, okay. And like, okay, what I'm hearing you say is this, that's it. So that's just showing that you're listening. Mm. And we are in such a state of, I would say, cultural narcissism, and I'm, I'm saying this in, in with all the love and care possible, that we are in such a community culture where we are thinking so much about what we want to say to other people that we're not listening. We don't make space for listening anymore. And just feeling heard is enough for most people to feel like I'm good. We just want to feel heard. You know, you ask me what is sort of the, you know, one of the questions I always get is what's the secret of communication? What's the secret to getting better with your employees, like building up your business so that they are more inclusive as community? What I practice with my men and my men's group, the leadership that I see there in my own business with people around me is really, it comes down to one thing, which is just, I listen to what they say and I confirm it. Like, that's it. That's the secret. That's the takeaway. And you'd be shocked at how many people will, will, will stop. Like I've argued with people on the internet, which if you ever try to have an argument with someone on the internet, you know how impossible and absolutely toxic it can be. But try this. If you're in the middle of an argument with somebody in real life on the internet, just start by saying, okay, this is what I'm getting from you. This is what I'm hearing. And you'd be surprised at how often that entire conflict will end. We're just not listening. And right now, even, you know, what we're seeing with the protests, the core of it is really just, we want to be heard. We want to be seen. We want to be, we want to be known that like we deserve a voice. That's all we want. We don't really want to change everything. We just want to know that we matter. Hmm. It's such a simple thing. Definitely right. Yeah, this is a profound conversation in terms of what's happening in the <laughs> Thank world. Thank you, right Monkey Shoulder. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you, Monkey Shoulder. Let's have another shot because it's it's Oh it's, boy. <laughs> my brain is now on overdrive thinking about all the things that you could respond to that with, but I'm gonna get another one of these down on me first. I can definitely respond to that one. Yeah, I there are so many people, even if you approach it that way, you know, you reflect the question and 
and then, you know, agree with it. I mean, a lot of them will be stumped, but they're always kind of searching for more. Cheers. Cheers. <sighs> when you say searching for more, can you elaborate a little on that? Yeah. Um, for example, um, I mean, we could probably use Black Lives Matter in this incident as an example, um, but they'll they'll push for some kind of affirmation that um, racism exists, for example, um, within um, the system, like there's systemic racism. So even if you, okay, let's say they sit down and everyone agrees, okay, there's systemic racism, um, we'll, we'll work on it and find solutions. Um, you know, they're still looking for something else to continue pushing the issue. So it'll be like, okay, well, it's not enough that you acknowledge that there's systemic racism and that you're doing something, but we need, we need something else on top of that too. Mm. And that's just one example from one side. I mean, it kind of goes both ways. Um, you know, you can look at it from a conservative point of view or from a, from the police's point of view too, where they're, um, they're saying that, you know, not all cops are bad. Not all cops do this. This is a very small percentage, you know, and then, you know, people will agree and be like, okay, yeah, most cops don't do that. And they'll be like, and then you need to stop rioting or you need to stop protesting for that reason, because it's not solving an issue. Mm-hmm. Like it's like both sides, like in this scenario specifically, yeah. or, you know, they're pushing for more. Um, they're not settling and saying, okay, there's an issue. Let's work together and just solve this issue. They, they kind of want more out of it. It's almost like there's, it's, it's super polarizing to the point where in this specific situation, you have two groups, uh, two sides of an issue that are, you know, trying to not just be heard, but they want to be right. And they mm. want the other side to, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. They want to be right. I think that's one of the major points is that people want to be right. And again, maybe that's just being heard to a certain degree. Uh, but I see it, I see it on both sides and I've, believe me, I'm, I've been listening and watching a lot of commentaries on this topic and it is, it is very difficult to navigate because it is a very emotional thing for most people. Um, and people are angry. So you are, you're seeing the wrath of, of, of a mob basically. And, and a mob is full of different types of people. It's full of, full of white women. It's full of black men. It's full of everyone you could possibly imagine. It could be part of this mob and they all have their own personal grievances or, or collective grievances. So yeah, you're dealing with a lot of baggage there. Uh, I think this is where leadership comes in. You know, if there's a good leader or good leaders on both sides, like for example, I would, you know, um, Martin Luther King was an incredible, uh, leader in, in how he was able to articulate the, his thoughts and beliefs and gain, you know, uh, acceptance among the ranks. And I, I'm not really sure who's, who's leading this, this campaign. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's kind of gone a bit out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we all know what the leadership looks like on the opposite side too. And <laughs> I think that needs a bit of work as well. Uh, so yeah, yeah. A lot of clashes. Yes. I mean, back then with Martin Luther, I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot to say, okay, 
there's some things we're doing wrong. We need to change. Like there's some very like clear societal things that were just wrong where they were, you know, segregating black versus white in a lot of situations still, um, you know, black people had to use different drinking fountains, different bathrooms, go to different schools. I mean, so there were tons of issues where you could point that out and people had no choice, but to reflect and change. You know, there's a lot of people today that are, that are white. And then, you know, you have these outcries and protests and riots saying we need to change even more, but they don't know what to change because, you know, they look at society and they're like, well, I treat black people just fine. Or, you know, I, I see black people with the same opportunities. And even if they don't in the same situation, it's just not as clear as it used to be. And I think maybe that's part of the issue too. It's not like these issues are being pointed out or pinpointed. Like this specifically needs to change. You know, this part of the systemic racism is the problem, or this is how it's happening. It's just everyone wanting their voice heard but there's not a whole lot of specific talk on what needs to change or like what the specific issue is. And mm. it's complicated, but it, it's part of the problem too. Mm. And you can't convince someone unless they know like what it is, you know, that you're trying to convince them of. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Possibly this keeps happening. And I'll, and I'll say that I know that we're not really talking about, you know, this is the actual subject of the conversation, but I, I will say this, I feel like, I feel like if there was more, at least if there was a little bit more movement done to, let's say, for example, okay, I'll give you an example. Breonna Taylor's death has still gone unacknowledged by the police department in her, uh, in that uh, area of the country. Mm -hmm. And it's now what, four weeks later? Mm -hmm. And there's still, there's still no arrests. They're on administrative leave. There's a bunch of lies. There's a bunch of, you know, uh, redacted statements and they're withholding information. I feel like this is really the issue that's driving a lot of this anger is the inability or the in the unwillingness to actually move on, on progress. And, and you can understand it because that's really where I feel the problem lies is, is within these institutions that, and I'm not saying that police are racist. I'm just saying there's definitely an issue here where it, it, it takes this long to admit to something, you know, <laughs> and a lot of it has just gone brushed under the, under the carpet. You know, we've seen in the past how difficult it can be to bring police officers to justice for in, in inappropriate uh, ways of dealing with um, the, the public killings. It's it's kind of how our system works though. I mean, you're innocent until proven guilty. And, you know, with all the tools that a cop has versus an ordinary citizen, it's very hard to prove a cop guilty. Mm -hmm. You know, when they, they're with a group of people, you know, they're with other cops that can corroborate their side of a story and their side of a situation, you know, with all the tech that they're wearing. I mean, the average person isn't wearing a body cam. The average person isn't, you know, in a situation where they can defend themselves. Mm. So there's, there's a lot of issues there with our society. Yeah. I mean, obviously you should be innocent until proven guilty. I'm not saying all cops are wrong or right for what they're, what they do in these situations, but it's very difficult for, you know, the citizen to have benefit of the doubt versus, you know, the cop who's part of the system and who has all these advantages. I think there's some issues there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's a long, it, it's, it's the, a long topic. Yeah, go it, ahead. John. It's the us versus M mentality. Um, on, I think on both sides is that we need, we need less division here. We, we need closer bridges. And I agree that there is not a simple cut and dry solution. And maybe we don't need one right now. Maybe what we need is not because how do you create a cut and dry situation for people who have on both sides felt like they've been suffering? You know, there, there's neither side that's going to feel like they've won in the situation. What we need is clarity and what we need is empathy. And I come back to that term of tactical empathy, which is really just about like self-imposed empathy is to make the choice of saying, OK, I'm going to listen first before I speak. I'm going to connect first before I divide. I'm going to build a bridge rather than a wall and to say it's possible. I'm not always right. It's possible the ideas that I've held have something that's logically incongruent. And to say, yeah, you know what, let's just be human beings instead of just the agendas that we carry. And I think that's a difficult thing for people to do because so much ego is tied in that. Because when your ideal is wrong, we foresee it as if my idea is wrong, then I'm wrong. Mm, We we see it as an ego attack. If a belief I have, let's say, you know, if my belief, let's say if I hold on to the belief that, um, let's say like, I'm going to go to the extreme here. And, uh, you know, let's say that it might be the monkey shoulder talking here. My belief is <laughs> white people are better. Okay. Let's say that's a belief. And I have to confront the reality that maybe we're all just human beings. What happens to my own view of myself in that situation? I have to confront, I might not be better. I have to confront, I may have faults. I have to confront, I may be responsible for certain actions that I've taken. That's a difficult pill to swallow for a lot of people, I think. Which is why the work always has to start from accepting that we are separate from our beliefs. And that a belief that we have can be wrong without making us worse human beings. And be like, okay, this is where change comes in. I think one of the issues that people struggle with on on that subject, and following on from what you said, is... owning up in relation to them keeping their job, right? Because because if you're, if you come, if you own up to something, because we're all human, everyone makes mistakes, but I think we're really good at putting the blame on someone else or something else, or because we're pressured to, because the constraints of our, you know, uh, relationship with our boss, our relationship with our family, because we have to provide for them. You know, all these things can weigh in on our ability to really tell the truth about the situation. So in an ideal world, everyone would just say what they thought and it'd be cool, be fine. Like, I mean, can you imagine if everyone just said what they felt? I think the world would, we would, we wouldn't, we would, we would be so evolved. By that now. might be a bad, bad place too. I mean, you do it. <laughs> <laughs> it'd be a very, it's like a hell. <laughs> I mean, maybe in your world, that'd be awesome. But I, I, I definitely think a filter is kind of important in this situation. Well, I, I, I'll share a story. So one uh, every year I do a personal experiment uh, with myself just to, just to see what the effects might be. And one of the years I practice this thing called radical honesty, which mm. uh, was it, the simple idea behind radical honesty is that like you don't lie. 
There's no lying, like not even lies of omission, not even like when your girlfriend comes to you and asks you, like, do you like my new haircut? Like you have to tell the truth. It's, it's an oath <laughs> to tell the truth. So I practiced this for a year. I bet and she hates that. <laughs> that, it that, was, that, that, it that was, time of the year. Oh man. It was the most challenging thing I've ever done is to speak the truth of how I genuinely feel without filter. And uh, how long does this last for? It, it was a year. You, I, I you spent it. a year just being honest. Yeah. Holy <laughs> shit. It, it started for a month. And uh, the first challenge, I, I always do this. So, so every year I pick a challenge, uh, I pick a theme and I lost the all first my month I try it out to see if it's possible. And then if it works then I do it for a year and that year it was radical honesty. And, uh, yeah, like it's exactly how you think your turnout. It means, you know, going up to people and telling them genuinely how you feel about them. So like, uh, there's three levels of honesty that I had to practice. The first level is, uh, you have to tell the truth to any question somebody asks you. Number two is everything you say cannot include a lie of omission. So like if you, if you say something and there's something that you're not stating, but you think of it, you have to voice all of it. And number three is you have to tell your past truth. So like, even like your feelings need to be vocalized. This was meant to be a self-development challenge of like seeing where it is that we have been dishonest in our lives. And it is speaking without filter. And let me tell you right now, it, it, it's, it's so incredible and so freeing, but it's also so difficult because mm-hmm. our, our society is built on an acceptance of friendly lies. <laughs> I'm just thinking of all the things that you possibly could have said during that year. Okay. Tell me what was the strangest thing you had to say in that year. Well, some, oh tell me some God. stories about the craziest things you had to admit to. Um, okay. So, Oh God, this is so embarrassing. All right. So <laughs> I think this was like a few months into the practice. Uh, and Okay. So I told a girl, uh, that I wanted to have sex with her (laughs) when we just first met. And so we were, we weren't like, it wasn't like she was a stranger. She was somebody sitting at a table next to me. I was with a couple of buddies. We were at a restaurant. We were all like, we were just eating. And then there was a table next to me and she said, you know, we just started chatting up and I looked over and I was like, Oh, fuck, I have to say this. And oh my God. I just looked over at her and I said, I just want to say, I think you're super hot and I would love to have sex with you. And that's what I'm thinking about right now. And she laughed and then she picked up a plate of pasta and threw it at me. Wow. And it just hit right in the chest. <laughs> so there I was and I was just like shaking my head. I was like, I deserve that. I, I'm so sorry. And I had to explain, I'm like, I'm so I'm I'm not trying to be a creep. Look, I'm doing this radical honesty thing. And she th- I thought it was so funny. And anyway, so I'm there, I'm dripping pasta all over my chest. And I was just like, I hope look, you weren't wearing like, a white shirt. I was a hundred percent wearing a oh white shirt. Oh my god, dude. <laughs> And I was apologizing. I was like, I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry if that offended you, but I, I have like, I'm doing this experiment where I'm, I have to say everything I'm thinking. Uh, I think that was the toughest thing. Uh, or the other thing was 
telling my parents uh, everything that I lied to them about that I could think of. But that's a different category <laughs> of stuff. That, that was I feel like times. once you, so, so once you think of it, you have to say it basically or... Yeah, if it shows up in your mind and it's about someone else, like you say it. Because the idea is to get <laughs> over your, your judgment itself, right? The idea is to let go of your own ego. And, and yeah. That's amazing, though. I, I, I feel like I can imagine, but not fully understand the implications that would have for you as a person. Like it must have been, like you said, completely uh, empowering, you know, to a certain degree. Oh yeah. It was so freeing. And wow. the best way I can describe it in the first three months is, uh, I, I probably lost two thirds of my friends. You know, yeah, yeah wow. you would have a picture of me coming out and, and, you know, like and voicing everything I thought about, but, but at the same time, the, the, the one third that stayed, we became much closer with like some of those friends mm. I have, maybe you just need to the let them go. Life. Yeah, because we yeah. became, we were able to communicate. Like, and the, the conversations oftentimes would turn out to be like, listen, man, look, I, uh, I think your girlfriend's an asshole. I think you're kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you did, and this is how I felt about it. <laughs> and then, like, the responses is that you know, the magic thing that happens is when you're honest with somebody else, they feel permission to be honest with you. Yeah. So I end up having these conversations like, oh, I think you're an asshole. And they're like, well, I think you're an asshole. And I'm like, <laughs> I know. And they're like, well, I think you're an asshole because you did this. And I was like, ah, oh, damn it. Like I was an asshole. Like, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I was such an asshole, but now we're communicating. Now there's no more resentment. Now there's no more like secrets. Like we're, we're just free to actually start communicating and being like, you know what? I was wrong when I did that. Or like, you know what? I wasn't wrong when I did that. Like that was just you, you made that stuff up. You never asked me about it. So the conversations could start connecting with it. It, it was one of the most exhilarating thing I've ever done in my life. And one of the most difficult at the same time. And I've done some weird shit in my life. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like that. <laughs> I don't even, I'm not sure if I want to know what the other stuff you've done. Is. <laughs> I mean, people will respect you a lot more when you're brutally honest. Like mm -hmm. when, when you put all the cards on the table, when you say everything that's on your mind, I mean, what else can they be afraid of with you that you could possibly say or possibly do if you're being that honest? People become more comfortable with you. Uh, some people, I mean, obviously you probably lose two thirds of your friends no matter what. <laughs> I think that's a good thing though. Honestly, if I'll, be, if I'll be honest, why would you want to have like, and this is just the brutal side of me speaking. Why would you want to have people in your social circle that you can't even trust to be honest with you? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's a, uh, there might be a, an aesthetic plus to that, but substantial plus, I don't think, I don't think so. Yeah, when it really boils down. I, to as, it. as you said, um, really, I don't regret anything that had happened because, really, with those people who left, I look back and I think, like, what was I really friends with them if I couldn't be myself around them? Right? Like, was I really, if I was honest with myself? Because really, at the end of it, the core is how honest are we with ourselves? And if we're not honest with other people, we can't be honest with ourselves. We can't really see what our deepest, truest thoughts are. And part of the practice of what I do even now, uh, you know, I, I still practice radical honesty to a certain degree to this day, just in much more contained environments, you know, um, is voicing what we call the shadows. And the, the, you know, Carl Jung talked about 
shadows. We have every human being, we have these shadow thoughts, the, sh- the thoughts that we come up with that we, we banish into the thoughts, you know, like walking by a hot girl when you're with your girlfriend and thinking like, Oh, she's hot. Like if I was given the chance, I would have sex with her. That seems so dramatic, of course. But at the same time, that's just a shadow. thought. It doesn't mean you act upon it. Mm. Yeah. And part yeah. of the work is, is accepting that there are thoughts that we have that are, that are dark, that are messed up or whatever it is that we judge and accepting that, okay, they're thoughts. And yeah. once we accept it, we can let it go and we can accept that. Okay. That was a thought. I know I would never act on it. I know it's not right. And I can let it go. And I think accepting yeah. and embracing that part of ourselves is part of the work and how we can grow from it. Here's an interesting question. Do you think that those thoughts, like let's say you're being brutally honest with someone or everybody, those thoughts that pop into your mind, do you think that shapes you as a character or do you think it's just part of human nature to have those thoughts? I think thoughts are not, I think we give way too much credence and weight to what thoughts are. For that matter, I think we give way too much, way too much weight to what feelings are like feelings and thoughts come and go like our brains are thinking machines. They're, they're supposed to come up with thoughts like our heart is designed to beat. Our brain is designed to think. So the thoughts will come and go. What defines character is what you do with those thoughts, right? Like what defines the integrity of a man or woman or, or whoever, you know, is okay, a thought comes up of, I, I want to cheat on my, let's say it's like, oh, a really hot person walks by and like, I want to cheat on a person. Integrity is going like, yes, I want to cheat on a person, but I'm not going to. Mm. I'm not going mm. to because I made a commitment because my word matters. That's what character is to me. That's what integrity is to me is to say, yes, somebody is offering me a lot of money to sell out. I'm going to say no, because I believe in something greater than money. I believe in something greater than just sex. I believe in something greater than my ego. So I think if anything, voicing that thought, but refusing to commit to it is the defination of character. Which is self-awareness as well. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. essentially what it is, is being aware that you have these crazy things that pass through your brain and you don't have to listen to all of them. That's, that's self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you could really go deep here. <laughs> you could really go deep here and say, well, we, can get, we can get a lot deeper. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, okay. Before we do that, let's, let's have another shot. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting well, for that one. I have some more I'm trying to see how red John can get before the end of this. Uh, <laughs> you can already see it. I'm, I'm pink, fully pink at this point. <laughs> I'm not going to let it subside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta keep it going. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Oh, it helps that this um, this whiskey goes down so smooth. It kicks in at the back of your throat, doesn't it? It kind of comes back through again as a as a post flavor. It's like a, it's, it's like waking me. Yes. <laughs> it's definitely yeah. Waking it's me it's nice. I like it. It's like a coffeeish flavor coming through. <laughs> oh my god I, got but, um, I was gonna say you know <clears throat> when it comes to religion it's you know like for example the catholic religion any religion really any 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 mainstream religion but catholicism and christianity you know you could look at them and say they've done a really good job of laying the groundwork for um ethics in society you know what 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 you should and should not do the ten commandments and so it, it's essentially like 
but, 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 but the difference between self-awareness and having ethics and religion and ethics, I think is just, I don't want to go to hell <laughs> or following through with my, 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 my primal needs of having sex with that woman that just walked past. Whereas the more evolved, you know, still ethics learned from religion, but just over generations would be, um, I'm not going to have sex with that woman because I value my partner and her feelings and my standing in society. And I think it's just a thought. It's just, a, and I understand the, the driving force behind it. It's a, it's a biochemical need. It's a programming in my system. And I can understand that. And, and a lot of people, I, I, not a lot of people, but I've spoken to people who see their issues that way, their real human desires and needs as a programming. And they don't let it get in their way of achieving the things that they want in life or living the life that they want. And I think that's incredibly powerful because it just shows how educated they are and self-aware they are mm -hmm. and emotionally intelligent they are to be able to stay on course without giving in to those desires uh, or those hiccups now and again. Well, maybe it's not just recognizing, you know, your thoughts and how it affects you, but how other people's thoughts might affect you too. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, we could look at it from a racial standpoint or a religious standpoint or a sexual standpoint. Um, you know, if, if you keep in mind that, you know, not only do you have these thoughts and they don't shape your character, but if other people, you know, have these thoughts out of human nature and it doesn't shape their character, how much, how many problems would be de-escalated immediately? Because how many problems are started just because people accidentally say something off the top of their mind or they are honest, but it doesn't. I don't know. Care. Tell us, John. <laughs> <laughs> Give us deep insight. We already uh, know they throw pasta. <laughs> when, when I was doing it, I would probably say there were at least uh, two things. One, people are extraordinarily nice. Uh, the pasta experience came, I think there was only like four or five experiences where I someone actually blow up and get in my face with conflict over what I was saying. I would probably say if you're being emotionally honest, at least four or five times a day, you're going to come up with thoughts that you, your conscious mind wouldn't accept. And, and I like the analogy and I've heard a, a couple of different analogies with this, like Mark Manson, uh, for example, an author who wrote the uh, subtle art, not giving a fuck, uh, describes it as like a clown car. I've also described it as kind of like riding an elephant, like your emotional mind, your, your thinking body, your feeling body, your feeling body is like an elephant. It will go where it wants to go. And this is something that I teach um, when I'm when I'm talking to people about product productivity or about uh, you know mindfulness and stuff like that. Is that your feelings are like a giant elephant? It wants to lead you into places, mm. and your thinking mind is like the rider on top of the elephant who's directing it. So there's a lot of convincing you have to do. Our minds would go all over the place. And it's, it's not about rejecting it. It's about accepting it for what it is and then choosing to do the opposite. Right. And, and that's okay. And accepting that having those thoughts doesn't define us. Our thoughts don't define us. Our feelings don't define us. Our actions define us. What we do define us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some people refer to it as the child and the adult brains, you know, mm, your child brain work, left parenting work. Yeah. 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 Because you know, that's the job of an adult is just to keep, keep the peace mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. keep them 
keep them from, from, from doing stupid things. So, um, that's also a good analogy. Uh, but anyway, back to, cause you know, I guess, yeah, back to the whole communication side of things and, um, teaching people how to, how to better communicate. Um, uh, do do you feel like, um, this is something that people are getting better at overall as time goes on or, do we still have a lot of work to do with that? I think that we have a work to do on the way we talk to ourselves. Hmm. I, I'm surprised by how little focus we have on the conversation with ourselves because the conversation we have with ourselves really define how we converse with other people. I know a lot yeah. of people who are very polite, but if you listen to the way that they talk to themselves, it is astounding how critical we can be. Yeah. And that for me was, was a big part of it. Like the self-critic, um, which is born from, as you said, like inner child fears, right? Like for me, it's the core of it is inner child work. There's a whole field of psychology dedicated to this of like what's called inner child work. It's about like reparenting. It's about connecting with your inner child. But for me, it was realizing how critical my conversation, like I was nice to everybody except for me. I was an absolute asshole when I talked to myself. Yeah. And I think a lot of people can relate to that and, and, yeah. and in, in just how critical you are. And somebody once asked me like, you know, if, would you let somebody else talk to you like that? Would you let somebody talk to your friend like that? And the answer is absolutely not. But then why do we let ourselves talk to ourselves like that? Yeah. I think that's, it's a funny mirror to look into when you are so nice outwardly, but then inwardly, you've got this kind of weird thing going on, which doesn't reflect you as a person when someone looks at you. I, and, and, and I feel like that's, 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 that's like the yin and the, it's, it's almost like it's self-perpetuating too. Mm -hmm. If you were genuine and if you, if you could allow yourself to say things without worrying about what other people think, which is a lot of what the niceness is, to be honest with you, isn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. It's just wanting to be liked. So that you oh, don't have man. To have conflict and things. So much. If you were willing to actually be genuine, then you might like yourself more. <laughs> 100%. Like the way I see it now is that like I care way more about how how much I like myself than how much anybody else like me. A hundred percent. And that actually was probably what helped me most in dealing with the burnout situation. Right. was was learning to set boundaries was learning to say no was learning to be like you know what i uh i care more about how i feel about myself and making this decision than how you feel about me and that change is so profound and so deep but so difficult to overcome because where did that come from where did the desire to be like come from it comes from our childhood when we were at the most vulnerable stage in our lives mm. right what about the so, flip side what about the flip side of this being emotionally reactive? Like from your point of view, talking about you being open and honest, but if someone was doing that to you, how would you react and, or how should people react appropriately? So when someone is uh, doing, sorry, just to clarify. So, yeah, so like, so the, the mentality that you had, you know, being honest and open and clear um, for that period of time um, from, you know, saying you lost two thirds of your friends or pretty close to that, or two thirds of your friends were affected by it. Um, that's a lot of people. 
You know, yeah. so on the flip side of it, I mean, it's not just you being in that mindset, but if you were receiving it, you know, mm-hmm. how are you emotionally reacting to it? Like, is, is there, should you emotionally react to it in a better way? Or is, is that a systemic problem with people, you know, not being used to that brutal honesty? I think a big change, I think the most important point of this is realizing that you are not responsible for how other people feel. And, and I want to clarify that because that's oftentimes interpreted to be, oh, just go out and be an asshole and, you know, fuck how they feel. But that's not it. It's that realizing that when you're telling the truth about how you feel, that's just your truth. You're not telling them a truth about them. So you're saying, you know, when you do this, I feel this. You're not saying you shouldn't do this. You're not saying that I'm going to control you and your behavior. I'm going to police you and your behavior. You're just saying that this is what I experience, and that's all it is. So when I look back at that time when I was doing the radical honesty and I was being very honest with how I experienced other people, the number one rule that I set was I could only share truths about myself. And what that means is I'm not saying you are an asshole. What you're saying is, is that I felt when you said this hurt. So I interpreted you to be an asshole. And that was the difference. And it's an important distinction to make because when we are honest about the fact that, okay, I feel this, but it's not your intention that changes the dynamic of our relationship. Because I'm able to accept that that's just how I feel about you is just my responsibility. And it's not my responsibility to police how you feel about me. It's not my responsibility to police how anybody else feels about me because people are going to come up with judgments about me no matter who they are. Even in this conversation we're having now, somebody listening to this can have a, like a completely different judgment of me than I have of myself. And that's okay. Like that judgment is 100% legitimate. It's just not how I judge myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So to take the power back and say, you know, at the end of the day, my relationship with myself is much more important than how, you know, my projection of how somebody else sees me right. is yeah. to accept that I'm a, I'm an imperfect human being. I have flaws. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to make mistakes, you know, especially with three shots of monkey shoulder down my, you know, <laughs> my throat and, <laughs> and that's okay. We keep coming back to this. So, you know, the, the social media of the world today is essentially mm-hmm. that issue for a lot of people, isn't it? It's like, I want you to see me this way. I'm mm-hmm. going to try so hard to make you think that I'm like this, this, and this. Well, it's uh, all fake. Unfortunately, it, it very rarely fake. works. There's, there's so much dishonesty. And I think that that's actually a disservice. I find that the social media, at least for me, what I relate to the most is when somebody is able to be honest with themselves, when somebody is able to be vulnerable and accepting of who they are. And I think that's what true power looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, think about a person who is just like, yep, these are my flaws. This is who I'm, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. And I don't really care what you think of me because I care so much more about what I think of me. I think that's what, what true power looks like Mm. as opposed to somebody who is like living this picture perfect life as I have lived before and trying to convince everyone to look up to me. I look at that with some skepticism these days. 
And I look at somebody who has a perfect social media platform and I'm like, eh, you know, who are you really? Like, what do you, what do you, what do you stand for? What do you believe in? What are you okay with me hating you about Hmm. or me disagreeing with you about, but you stand for, I respect that. And like, I don't care if what you stand for is something I disagree with, but do you stand for something? Hmm. Do you have a code? I mean, if I think of someone who embodies that in the, most profound way for me. I know he may not be someone that many people agree with, and I don't agree with him on on a bunch of stuff, but, (laughs) but Ricky Gervais is Mm. unbelievably like that. Mm -hmm. He'll go out and just, I mean, he's, he's totally honest about it. He'll, he'll host the Oscars for like five times in a row, maybe. And every single time he'll be like, by the way, I'm just going to completely rip the shit out of everyone. I hope you understand. And then he'll continue to do it and he'll do it. And he doesn't even give a shit. I mean, you know, but he's being genuine because he really doesn't want to be there. He he really doesn't want to be there. He's just being paid a hell of a lot of money. So he's like, whatever. But um, he sees the flaws in in that aspect of, you know, uh, that industry. Mm-hmm. And, and he'll, he'll pull, pull things apart. I think this is a good stand-up comedian as well. You know, you need to be able to do that. Uh, there are many others that, that are also like, like him, but I think he's probably the most outgoing, um, outspoken, genuine comedian I've ever seen. And he deals with a lot of backlash because of it. But, mm-hmm. you know, when he, when he gets interviewed, he'll, he'll be honest and he'll say things like, it's not, my job to make you say things that I want to hear. It's totally fine with me. You should be allowed to say those things. And I, and I can react any way I want. It's the same way, the opposite way around. It's like, I can say things as as, I can say whatever I want because it's freedom of speech and Mm -hmm. however you react is up to you. It's your, Mm -hmm. it's not nothing to do with me. And I, and I was like, wow, that's, I never really thought about it until you brought it up and makes a lot of sense. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I love Ricky Gervais for that. Yeah. You know, he is so antagonistic, but you can believe that he is speaking his truth. Yeah. Um, I'm a big believer that everyone should write down a code of the things they stand by and whatever that may be. It may be like, oh, I stand for kindness. I stand for whatever it is. For, for me, I have like a list of 10 things that it's my personal creed. It's like, this is what I follow. This is what I'm about. And And a big part of that is establishing, this is what I will stand for in this world. And everything outside of that is not my concern, but like, this is what I stand for. For me, number one on that list is, you know, speaking your truth. And I I think Mm -hmm. that when we give ourselves permission to speak our truth and also accept the consequences that follow, we are truly able to be free to be who we are. That's good advice too. Like I've, I've gotten that advice in different ways too. you know, be telling yourself, like, what are, what are the values you stand behind? You're like, what, what are those things like relating to whatever it is? Like I had someone that I look up to at one point, tell me that when it comes to relationships or girls, um, you know, and dating and who you want to be with, you know, is this me? Write it down. Like, what is it specifically you're looking for? You know, what are those values? What are those things you stand behind? Um, and then focus on that. And I mean, that can apply to many different things, but I think it's important you know, to have those values. A hundred percent. And I'm also noticing that Clement is now pouring a new shot. So I would me, is this Clement? 
<laughs> I feel like there's a problem when you're the one who's always setting the pace. <laughs> you you have something to work through there. <laughs> there's a problem so, uh, when you, this case, you don't know what shot you're on. <laughs> mm. Mm. Oh, okay. Where are we going? Oh. It doesn't help that my shot glass is a double shot glass. <laughs> I, I, I kind of get it wrong sometimes. I go a little bit higher than you know, a shot. Clement, you're the one oh. always complaining about how we should stop drinking so much hard alcohol. You're the one with a double <laughs> shot glass. But I'm always, this, this is a very, very, very... Uh, you can see how this ties together. Like I'm, I know there's a problem. That's why I'm trying to stop it. (laughs) (laughs) We're making a dent in this bottle. I would say we are Uh, making a dent in this bottle. Did we even read the label yet? Like what's in this? We should not read the label, but um, it's, it's a long one. Small batches of three fine space side single malts and then married to achieve a smoother, richer taste. So I guess there are very different types of single malts. Mm. Uh, and, and one of them must be incredibly sweet. I would imagine. So there's a matrimony of malts and taste. Mm. Okay, so let's, let's uh, ash 27. Mm. I, I have to say it tastes real, like it is quite smooth. It is, yeah. It is quite it, it's much rich. smoother than most Scotch whiskeys, I would say, uh, that yeah. I've tasted. Uh, the best, thing, it, best part about this is that there's a malt master, like that's actually a profession. There's a Dude, malt I master. Think, you know what? I think that's the case with most of them, to be honest with you. But I'm curious, like, do you apply for that job as a malt master? Like, uh, <laughs> like this person who sounds, signs this, like he sounds self-employed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's it's fitting because the logo is three monkeys, and uh, uh, I am William and I, Grant. I definitely Paul feel like a monkey right now. <laughs> it must be like a chef, you know, for a restaurant, and and you kind of look for well for the younger uh, distilleries. The older distilleries, I feel like it's probably family. You know, it's mm-hmm. probably someone in the family or closely known by the family and their family. But for the newer distilleries, you know, I, I, I don't think they have that choice. So these guys aren't that old. I mean, as no, far as exactly. go, most hard liquors, they're only been around since 1887. Yeah. Family owned since 1887. So you know, so the beauty of all this is that any, any of the listeners who wanted to, uh, to, to watch a video of this, I am currently a very smooth pink. <laughs> <laughs> no faking. I, I can't yeah. fake drinking. <laughs> That's when you know you're healthy because you your body reacts still I, to the that Asian <laughs> It's it's not given up yet. <laughs> in in our case, it's it's over. The battle is won. <laughs> yeah. This is why I like this podcast. It's kind of like Hot Ones. If you've ever seen that on YouTube, where they eat the hot wings and they ask yeah. questions. Um, yeah, it it gets better and better as you go. <laughs> John and I were kind of having a back and forth uh, when before we did this recording, and and I was I was explaining to John that it's not like hot ones, you know, it's not like we're going to sit and do like a round of four shots in a in a row, and and I said to myself, 
but that's not a bad idea. <laughs> I mean, it's I'm just going to point true. out that I came on the show with that agreement and yet I'm four <laughs> shots in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you so, know, uh, we, we, we should have try that warning for future yeah. guests. <laughs> yeah. We could yeah. try that one day, but, but, it, it, but let's, let's, let's talk about, okay. So let's round this off then. I, I think, I think what we've, we've covered a lot of stuff when it comes to communication and, and some of it's very deep and some of it's more superficial, but let's go through like, let's say some final tips and what would you say are the most important things when you come to, I mean, you've already touched on one of them, but what are the most important things when someone approaches you for help when it comes to communicating, like whether it's professional or personal, or does it change? Is it different? Um, like what are the top things that you would want to work on with someone to make them a much better communicator? Excellent point. Um, my answer to that is almost always uh, go look up nonviolent communication and it's, it's a phenomenal resource. It's a book. There's, they talk about this. It's a, it's a practice. And essentially, nonviolent communication, which sounds very dramatic, but it really comes down to being very honest with what you're communicating. Um, as in, not radical honesty, but rather being honest about um, when you're communicating your own feelings, make sure to identify that it's your own feelings as opposed to somebody else's, we go through such a habit of making you statements like you do this and you do this and you do this, which creates an immediate division point between you and somebody else. So like it creates an us versus them right off from the get go. And I think mm. so much conflict can be avoided if we just acknowledge that, no, it's just what you feel. So I feel this when you say this is much less aggressive than you say this and this is a result as if it's universal. So to so accept that basically that other people's feelings are not your responsibility, but at the same time, your feelings are not other people's responsibility. I'm not saying this from the perspective of harm. Like if you go around and saying like, oh, you're, you're a jackass and you're an asshole. Yes, you're causing harm, but that's also not the truth. Right. What you're actually saying is, I feel like when you do this, I feel this, this is a truth. So when you say blank, whatever that thing is, I feel hurt. That's the truth. So when we can start taking personal responsibility for how we feel and accept that, like how we feel is our own responsibility, it changes everything. It changes how we communicate and connect with people. It changes yeah. how we deal with employees. It changes how we deal with customers. It changes how we deal with everyone right. by accepting what truly is. And there's two parts to it. It's very simple. It's accepting that our feelings are our own and accepting that when we're voicing our feelings, this is our own creation. And also allows the room for clarity because it allows them to say, well, that wasn't my intention. And you can actually start having a conversation. Oh, what was your intention? What was mm -hmm. your meaning when you said this? I, I would yeah. say that is the core of improving communication in right. general. And, and also giving yourself permission to be a little more honest to yourself at the very least. Yes. You know, give yourself permission to say, well, you know, this is what I'm experiencing. This is where my boundaries are. This is where, this is what I'm comfortable giving away. This is where I'm not comfortable giving away. And realizing that our relationship with ourselves is as legitimate as our relationship with another person. I, yeah. Yeah. I can't help but think about someone listening to this 
and then they go away and they, let's say, for example, they go in a team meeting where they know that fucking asshole Andy's going to be there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're trying hard mm. to be like that. And then he says something and it's like, ah, nah, you know, it's boxed the whole thing with them. Mm. So I can see how, you know, the, 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 the initial knowledge of just like, okay, I need to change the way I frame things mm. so that I can open up a conversation and like a, a dialogue. Uh, what does it really take though, to be able to manage that kind of, emotional response like it, it, it i know that it can burrow really deep with certain people for example especially if you're talking with family members because you can have all the education in the world and you can jump into the family home <laughs> and talk to your mom and you'll be like immediately go back to the way you were as a child like, mm-hmm. i i mean i mean how do you how do you feel about that is there anything that you could say like to help people kind of get over that that hurdle the way that we have our what we call inner child, right? This is this is a practice called reparenting, which is us dealing with understanding how our inner child shows up. The core of this comes down to if we are dealing with a parent, is to recognize our humanity first. If we're dealing with somebody else, is to recognize our humanity first. Is to accept that the principle is everyone in general are acting to the best of their abilities to be happy. That is universal truth. Every single person you deal with, they are doing whatever they think they need to do in order to be happy. And it's something we don't think about because some, like, you know, I've had people who have come to me and say, well, people have tried to hurt me. And I acknowledge that. And I'm saying, yes, people are trying to hurt you, but people have tried to hurt you because in their mind, they think that's the way to them being happy. So when we start to acknowledge that universally, all we really want is to be heard, loved and seen and to be happy. We can start going, okay, well, why is this person doing this? Like if they're doing something to hurt me, why do they think that by hurting me, they'll be happy? Because that's really all we want. So the next step then is to listen to that and being like, okay, what's the deeper pain that they have? So it's a, mm-hmm. you know, coming around to what, what Brandon was saying is it's, it's strategic empathy. It's empathizing with the other person and recognizing that they're a human being and they have at the core a desire to be happy and accepting that and going, okay, well, if all you want to be is happy, how can I how can we bridge this? How can we bridge this gap where I want to be happy? You want to be happy and find that connection point. Yeah. Rather than going into you're trying to hurt me. So therefore I'm going to do whatever it takes to hurt you back first. Yeah. And I think that in itself is such an important philosophy to come with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess that's like what you were talking about. Tactical empathy before, right? Brandon. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose that's a way of not, tactical empathy as well. I mean, my background is in neuroscience and psychology, but I'm definitely not an expert on it. It is a term that I'm more recently familiar with because of a couple of books I've read, but it makes a lot of sense and it, there's a lot of truth to it. Um, I, I guess from your perspective, what, 
like if, if there's someone that wanted more education on this kind of stuff, like what kind of books do you like that you would recommend or like movies or TV shows or podcasts, you know, that kind of mm. talk about some of this stuff or similar stuff that, you know, have some good points um, or that make a lot of sense that maybe you would recommend. Um, if they want to understand radical honesty more, uh, a book, the, the, the core book, which is by Dr. Uh, Brad Blanton, is called Radical Honesty. I highly recommend that one. Um, if they want to sort of dive a little bit into why it is that we we speak in untruths so other people may like us, uh, the book will be like No More Mr. Nice Guy. Uh, that's a very, very famous and, and great book on why it is that we create this nice facade when we're not speaking our truth and why that's actually counterintuitively hurting us more. No more and then finally, okay. if they, if their goal is to be able to communicate better, I would say, look into nonviolent communication. I, th I think that's a very big one. All three really follows the same line, which is understanding what your truth is and embodying it and being okay with it. And that realizing that your thoughts are not def what defines you. Your feelings are not what defines you. What you do is what defines you. But ultimately the way you communicate with others is always being seen and judged and reflected by your own inner self. So standing by what you truly believe and communicating what you truly believe is ultimately, you know, and of course within reason, I mean, I, I don't actually advocate being radically honest, for example, in everything you do. I, I think it's a great experiment. I think it's a good practice to, to understand the, the psychology behind it. But in real life, I think that there is a room for, I would say, strategic diplomacy for example. Um, but with yourself being aware and forgiving yourself for the thoughts you have and accepting yourself for the thoughts you have goes a long way in feeling better and knowing how to better connect with people. And I think that's what we need today is, is less division and more connection. Hmm. Nice. That makes a lot of sense. It does. Maybe I am that's not a good going to. to I'm sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. I was saying, I'm not going to let you get away from this podcast without doing another shot. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that's a good place to wrap it up. But shot number five. Let's do it. <laughs> was that what you were going to say, Brandon? Or Well, I mean, I was going to say that we could spare him the shot. But since you want to do another shot, I guess we will him. Sorry, I just thought I had to laugh out loud at that. Well, I, I, I've got a meeting in, th in only three hours. So I have three hours to sober up. Here we go, guys. That's awesome. <laughs> Ladies okay, and gentlemen, the, our, our final shot of Monkey Shoulder. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. You have a legitimate excuse. Oof. <clears throat> when you talk to your day, uh, meeting. <laughs> to let them know why you're so up, upbeat and uh, uh, you know you want to share so much <laughs>